seated and as you do let's pray again together oh great holy god we trust you we thank you that you are who you are that you revealed yourself to us we want to be thankful grateful all that you have shown yourself to be for us for all that you've done to rescue us from your wrath from our sin for all you've done to make us your own children for all you've done to help us see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. We thank You. We praise You. We exalt You. We thank You for gathering us this morning around Your Word, around Your Gospel, so that we might be Your people, so that we might have You as our God. You might help us and You might strengthen us and You might mature us to do all that You've called us to do. Lord, we pray that You would speak to us now from Your Word. We pray You would mature us in Your truth. We pray You'd mature our faith, that You would grant us faith, that You would help our unbelief, that You would help us to believe You and trust Your truth. We know faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ, and so would faith be the result of this morning? Would You strengthen and mature our faith? Would You help us to see that light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ? Would You remove hardness of heart? Would You remove veils that we might see clearly? Your power, Your majesty, Your righteousness, that we might be Your people. Oh God, mature us, sanctify us, grow us, save Your people this morning, oh God. Save us by Your power. Do Your work in us. We'll give You all the glory so that we might say, My only boast is You. All we have is Christ. And Christ is enough for us. So Lord, help us to believe that. Open our eyes. We pray in Jesus' great name. Amen. And amen. Well, turn with me to Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 1. Romans, chapter 1. We're going to look at just two verses this morning. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Romans 1, 16 and 17. I'm going to read these two verses over us. And then after I read them, I'm going to attempt to quote them by memory. And if you want to join me in quoting them by memory, or if you want to just look at the screen and say them out loud, that's fine as well. But after I read them over us, then let's say Romans 1, 16 and 17 together. This is what Paul says. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's try to say that by memory together. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the Word of the living God. May God burn its truth onto our hearts. 
As we come to verse 16 in chapter 1 of Romans, we're at a transition in this letter. Paul is concluding the introduction and greeting to this letter, and he's launching into the meat of what he's going to be saying for the next 15 chapters. He's concluding this introduction, and he's launching into why he is writing this letter in the first place, and what's going to occupy him for most of the rest of the book. Most scholars identify Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 as the theme or summary of the whole of Romans. This is what Paul is going to spend the rest of this letter unpacking, defending, and exulting in. He's going to take these phrases and unpack them over chapters and chapters and chapters. This is the message that Paul believes will fuel the Romans and us to be engaged in preaching Jesus to the nations. This is the message that Paul wants to be the foundation of launching out to proclaim the gospel to all the world. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous shall live by faith. Here's how I would summarize the burden of these two theme verses. I would summarize it by saying the gospel of Jesus is the saving power of God that reveals the righteousness of God for all who believe. The gospel, the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is the power of God that reveals the righteousness of God for all who believe. And so let's unpack these two verses with five summary statements about the gospel that Paul says he is not ashamed of. Five summary statements. Number one, the gospel is to be boasted in. The gospel is to be boasted in. It's to be rejoiced in. Now, Paul intentionally uses the negative in verse 16, and he intentionally understates his point for effect. I am not ashamed of the gospel. As he says that, what he's really saying is, the gospel is all my life. I boast in, I rejoice in the gospel more than anything else. He's saying, all I have is Christ. Jesus is my life. The gospel is so central to me that I dare not be ashamed of it. Now, in Paul's culture, there was a heavy weight placed on shame. To be ashamed of someone's family or someone close to you was unthinkable in this day. We don't feel this as deeply in our culture, but this is why, say, Peter's actions of denying Jesus were so egregious, so serious. Peter was ashamed three times to admit that he even knew Jesus because of the consequences that would come to him. To deny you know someone 
is to be ashamed of them, to be embarrassed by your relationship to them. And because Paul says this here, we must understand that Paul felt the temptation to be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus. Things would go much easier for Paul if he stopped boasting in Jesus, right? All his problems, all his pain was owing to the fact that he refused to be ashamed of Jesus. And so he emphatically declares here that he is not ashamed of the gospel. He is saying the gospel is central to him. The gospel is his boast. We see this all through Paul's writings. For example, in Galatians chapter 6, verse 14, Paul says, the only boast he has is in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every other boast, he says, is a boasting in the gospel of Jesus. Now friends, it is all too easy today to be ashamed of the gospel in our day and time, the temptations to downplay how significant Jesus is to us abound. The temptations are all around us to sort of water down or dilute the gospel just a little bit to make it sound less foolish. The temptation to be silent about Jesus when we should be speaking His truth is something we all know all too well. And we usually think it's no big deal, right? We make some excuse about how it's not the right time or how we're just sort of living out the gospel. We don't really have to speak the gospel. Friends, we need to repent of the ways we have been ashamed of Jesus and His gospel in our lives. We need to repent of the ways we've been ashamed to identify with Jesus and to boast in Jesus in our lives. Jesus Himself told His disciples that if anyone is ashamed of Him, He will be ashamed of us before His Father. I grieve to think of all the ways and all the days I've been ashamed of the true and beautiful Gospel of Jesus. You see, Paul isn't aiming at people who just believe the Gospel privately but are ashamed of it publicly. This seems to be how most so-called Christians live today. They just keep Jesus in their private life, ashamed to boast in Him and stick their necks out for Him for fear of being weird or being an outcast or being ridiculed. Most of us are ashamed of the Gospel if we're honest and perhaps the reason why we are so ashamed of Jesus is because we don't really believe He's strong enough to keep us to the end. We hedge our bets just in case Jesus doesn't work out for us. Friends, you will only boast in something that you're fully convinced is powerful enough and beautiful enough and trustworthy enough to hold you to the end. And so, to not be ashamed of Jesus... We have to go out on a limb in our trust of Jesus, knowing He will hold us fast when we're ridiculed, when we're persecuted, when we lose our job, when we lose friends, when we lose cool points at school because of our boast in Him. We must trust Jesus in such a way that we actually boast in Him, rejoice in Him, declare that we love Him more than we love anything else 
in all of life. Paul is not ashamed of Jesus. He's not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus. And notice why he's not. Why is he not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus? This is the second truth. Number two, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. He's not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Notice the little word for there. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For or because it is the power of God for salvation. So notice that Paul doesn't simply say the gospel is powerful or that it contains power. Notice what Paul actually says. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. The omnipotent, sovereign, almighty power of God comes through a message, comes through good news. It comes through the gospel of Jesus. You see, Paul knows the gospel won't let him down because he knows it is the power of God. He doesn't have to worry about being abandoned because the gospel is the power of our God. And specifically, the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Now, the word salvation is a much broader word than we usually think about salvation. We usually think about someone initially becoming a Christian. That's what we normally think when we say salvation. However, salvation in Paul's language is much broader and deeper than merely becoming a Christian. Salvation to Paul is the entire scope of God's work to save us and sanctify us and ultimately to glorify us. And so the gospel doesn't just save us from the penalty of sin so we don't have to go to hell. It does do that, praise God. But the gospel also saves us from the power of sin in our everyday lives. And it will ultimately save us from the presence of sin when we see Jesus face to face. The gospel saves us from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and the presence of sin. It saves us fully, completely. So the salvation that comes to us through the power of the gospel is an all-encompassing salvation. We need to understand this. In understanding how holistic salvation is, we understand that even Christians need salvation. I need salvation every single day. I need to be saved from sin's power to blind me and deceive me and harden me. I need salvation from my pride and greed and lust and grumpiness every hour of every day. Friends, which we need the gospel every single day, every single moment of every day. The Christian life isn't over when we initially are saved by the gospel. The Christian life is a life of being changed by the power of the gospel from one degree of glory to another. And this power of God for salvation will be fully realized when one day we see Jesus face to face and we are glorified once and for all. Do you see the implication of saying the gospel is the power of God that we need for salvation at every stage of salvation? The undeniable implication of this truth is that we cannot save ourselves at any of those stages in our relationship with God. 
We cannot justify ourselves and we cannot sanctify ourselves and we cannot glorify ourselves. If your view of the Christian life is that God justified you, but now you have to do it on your own strength and your own power to obey God's commands, and you're missing out on the power of the Gospel for everyday life. You're missing out on God's power, the means by which He saves and sanctifies and glorifies us. The power to love your spouse and not abandon your family is the power of the Gospel of Jesus. The power to be sacrificially generous and not materialistic is in the power of the Gospel. The power to do anything lasting and not waste your life comes through and in and by trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior. And so Paul is not ashamed of the Gospel because the Gospel is his daily companion. The power of God saving him from himself, from his sin, and from God's wrath. God saves through the good news that Jesus died for our sins, was rescued, was, was resurrected, and, and rescues us by that same power. And He does so for our total salvation, for our full experience of His saving power. So are you struggling? Are you struggling to beat an addiction in your life? Do you keep falling into the same sins again and again and again? Do you hate the way you speak to and treat the way, the way you treat the people you love? So listen to the good news. There's power from God available. It's not just past tense power that once saved you. It's present tense power to fight sin and darkness in our everyday lives. The gospel is the power of God for our salvation to everyone who believes. We have to consider this question. Who's the gospel actually for? Who's the gospel actually for? This is the third truth. Number three, the gospel is for the Jew and for everyone who believes. The gospel is for the Jew and for everyone who believes. So notice carefully how I worded this truth. The gospel is for the Jew and... Not but, but and for everyone who believes. Look at the word everyone in verse 16. This is the most thrilling word in all the world. Everyone includes you and me. We are part of everyone. And this verse says that if we believe, the gospel is the power of God for our salvation. Yes and amen. If you feel like you're excluded from God's power in the gospel for whatever reason... You were in the wrong family, you have the wrong background, wrong education, wrong morality, wrong sexual preference, wrong race, wrong whatever. Then listen to this word, everyone. Feel the wonder of being included in this everyone. No one is excluded from everyone. And anyone who believes is included in this salvation by the power of the Gospel. And if that's true then why say the gospel is for the Jew and for everyone? Like, couldn't we just say the gospel's for everyone and we're really saying the same thing, right? Saying the gospel's for everyone and the gospel's for the Jew and for everyone is the same, the exact same thing. We could do that, we could say that, but if we did, we'd be missing an emphasis 
of this text. We have to account for this weird to our ears phrase to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Why does Paul say this? I mean, this sounds strange to my 21st century American Gentile ears. Like, does this sound strange to you as well? We're so used to everything being about us, us being at the center of everything in our culture, that it's hard to hear that we aren't the priority. It's hard to hear that. How's the gospel for everyone, but yet it has a priority? How's the gospel for everyone, and yet it's first for the Jews? Well, we need to understand this because it's here in the Bible in this theme verse of the book of Romans. Jew and Greek, or Jew and Gentile, are categories that include everyone. So we've got to understand that first. Greek here doesn't mean from the country of Greece. Greek is a non-Jew. So if you aren't a Jew, you're a Greek, you're a Gentile. And so I'm assuming almost everyone here today, maybe everyone here today, is a Gentile. Maybe there's someone here who has some Jewish lineage, but not many of us. So why is the gospel for the Jew first? Well, we could do an entire series on this, tracing God's working through history, and come to this full and rich understanding of why Paul is saying this. But to put it very simply, I'd say it this way. This is a reference to salvation history. This is a reference to all of God's plan and working in salvation The Jews are first in that the gospel originally came to them. They were the ones who originally received the gospel. They were the people that God chose out of all the people in the world to embrace as His own. It wasn't because they were more in number than all other people. It wasn't because they were stronger than all the other people in the world. It was because God chose to love them. God chose to put His love to start His salvation history with them. And it was to the Jews, as a Jew, that Jesus came. Remember, Jesus himself said, I came to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So, salvation is for the Jew first and also for the Greek. This does not mean that Jews have any inherent righteousness to commend them to God. Paul is going to hammer this home in the book of Romans. The Jews are just as unrighteous as the Gentiles. The only way anyone is saved, Paul is going to argue, is through faith in Jesus, both Jews and Gentiles. Now, Paul's going to explain this in much greater detail as we move through Romans, particularly when we get to chapter 11, where he says the Jews have been cut off because of their unbelief, and they've been cut off so that Gentiles can be grafted in. And so Paul's going to talk about this a lot more and how God's salvation history has included both Jews and Gentiles. But I assume his point here at the beginning of Romans is to offend both Jews and Gentiles by reminding us all that we have absolutely no inherent righteousness of ourselves. We don't have exclusive access to the power of God because we're either a Jew or a non-Jew. Paul is offending both Jew and Gentile by saying the gospel is for everyone. This is a way for Paul to emphasize that it is by faith alone that we have salvation and not by anything inherent in us. 
not by anything we were born into, and not by anything we've done on our own. Salvation is for everyone who believes. The fourth truth about the gospel that I want you to see here, the fourth summary statement is this. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God. The gospel reveals something. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God. And so we get to verse 17. Verse 17 explains how the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Notice again the word for. How is the gospel the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes? For it reveals God's righteousness. The righteousness of God is revealed. So the gospel, Paul says, proclaims, displays, and discloses the righteousness of God. Now this phrase, highlight it, underline it, the righteousness of God. This is a phrase that has probably been debated more than any other phrase in the whole book of Romans. And this phrase is so important because here it is in this theme verse in Romans and Paul's going to pick this up again and again and again and build on this. So the next about five minutes of this sermon is going to be the most weighty, the heaviest thing that we're going to do this morning. But I hope it provides a foundation that we can build on as we move through Romans and try to understand what Paul means by the righteousness of God. What is actually revealed in the gospel? What is it that the gospel reveals? What is this righteousness of God? And so engage with me for a few minutes. There are basically three ways that have been proposed that we understand the righteousness of God in this verse. And as you would expect, these three are combined and joined in every way possible. So let me share with you the three ways just really briefly. The first option is to take this as an attribute of God. God is righteous. And so when Paul says the righteousness of God, he means God's righteousness. Some would say, he's saying, so they're saying, he's saying, the gospel reveals the righteous character of God. Is that what Paul means when he says the righteousness of God, an attribute of God? Secondly, the, other, the next option is to see this as something God gives to those who believe. That is, he counts them as righteous because of the righteousness of Jesus. And so in this option, in the gospel, it's revealing that God is giving something to those who believe. He is declaring them right in his sight. He is justifying them. It's the second option. The third option is to understand the righteousness of God as something God does actually for his people. That is, he makes them actually righteous. So in the second option, he's merely declaring them to be righteous. In the third option, he's actually taking unrighteous people and saving them by righting their wrongs and making them righteous. So which of these three options does Paul have in mind when he says the gospel reveals the righteousness of God? Well, all three of these could be argued for from the book of Romans itself. We could go to places where all three of these ideas are taught by Paul. And so none of them are necessarily wrong. There's no reason Paul couldn't have a combination of all three of these options in his mind as he declares the gospel reveals the righteousness of 
God. However, with even saying that, this could be all three options all bundled up together. There is no doubt that the second option of God giving righteous standing before Him is the most prominent way Paul uses the righteousness of God in the book of Romans. And so if we want to argue from the context of Romans as a whole, it's the second option that's the most prominent in Paul's exposition of the gospel, that God declares sinners to be righteous in His sight. Paul is going to explain throughout Romans how God justifies sinners. That is, God declares sinners to be right in His sight. In fact, the word righteousness and the word justification are the same root word in Greek. So every time we come to either one of those words in Romans, it's essentially the same idea. So just to make up a word, justification is God righteousing the unrighteous. Justification is God righteousing, declaring righteous people who are unrighteous. Here's how one of my favorite commentators, John Stott, summarize how we understand these three options and how the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. Follow along with this quote on the screen because it's quite weighty, but I think he says it well. Stott says, It seems legitimate to affirm, therefore, that the righteousness of God is God's righteous initiative in putting sinners right with Himself by bestowing on them a righteousness which is not their own, but His. The righteousness of God is God's just justification of the unjust. His righteous way of pronouncing the unrighteous righteous, in which He both demonstrates the righteousness and gives righteousness to us. He has done it through Christ, the righteous one, who died for the unrighteous, as Paul will explain later. And He does it by faith when we put our trust in Him and cry to Him for mercy. End quote. So the Gospel reveals God's righteous way of righteousing the unrighteous. God's just way of justifying the unjust. That's what Paul is going to unpack in the book of Romans. In fact, the bulk of Romans could be seen through the lens of the righteousness of God. You can actually take this phrase, the righteousness of God, and show an outline of how Paul unpacks this idea throughout the book of Romans. For example, some commentators would say it this way. Chapter 1, verse 18 through chapter 3, verse 20, explains our lack of unrighteousness. In fact, Paul will say, there is none righteous. Chapter 3, verse 21, through chapter 5, verse 21, explains God's provision of the righteousness we need by faith in Jesus. We are unrighteous, but Jesus is fully and totally righteous in our place. Chapter 6, verse 1 through chapter 8, verse 39 explains that in Christ's righteousness, we are now slaves to righteousness. 
Paul wants us to see ourselves as slaves in the righteousness of Jesus. Chapter 9, verse 1 through chapter 11, verse 36, Paul defends God's righteous character against the accusation that he's unrighteous. And then in chapter 12, verse 1 through chapter 15, verse 13, Paul describes how a justified sinner lives a righteous life. So the gospel, Paul says, reveals something. It reveals the righteousness of God. It reveals that there are no other means of being right in God's sight. That's what the the powerful gospel reveals. That there's no other means of being declared righteous in the sight of God. And that's why the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And that is why we should never, ever be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus because it reveals the righteousness of God. Number five, and finally, the gospel is to be embraced by faith alone. The gospel is to be embraced by faith alone. Sola fide. Faith alone is another great theme of the book of Romans. Notice that Paul says the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. From faith for faith. Now this is a very interesting phrase. From faith for faith. And as you can imagine, there are various understandings of this phrase that have been proposed throughout history. But I think the most basic understanding of this phrase is the most powerful of all. Paul is saying... It is entirely by faith. That's what he's saying in for, from faith, for faith. It's entirely by faith. In fact, some translations actually translate this phrase beginning and ending in faith. In other words, totally by faith. Not some faith and some morality. Not a little human wisdom and a lot of faith. Not 99% faith and 1% works. No, Paul is saying entirely by faith. From faith, for faith means by faith alone. And notice Paul supports this point from Habakkuk 2.4 which says the righteous shall live by faith. That is, the righteous have life and salvation and right standing with God by faith. Paul is quoting from the Old Testament here to show this has always been God's requirement for salvation. Faith in Him. Remember Landon read Genesis 15 earlier. What was it that God counted righteous to Abraham? It was His faith. Faith is not a work itself. But it is a humble declaration that we have nothing to commend ourselves to God. Faith says, I am weak, God is strong. Faith says, I am nothing, God is everything. Faith, like nothing else in all the world, humbles man and exalts God. And so the only proper response, whether it's the initial response to the gospel or whether it's the millionth response to the gospel in our lives, the only proper response is faith, trusting in Jesus, receiving Jesus as your greatest and highest treasure. It is only by faith, Paul says, and entirely by faith. Now, these two verses, Romans 1, 16 and 17, are some of the verses that God used to spark, to to lead the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s. 
In fact, when 1517, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany, was the spark that started that reformation. Martin Luther was a monk who believed that salvation could be had by earning it, that he could earn his way to peace with God. Luther sought peace and comfort and salvation through his rigorous schedule of prayer and religious duties. Luther threw himself into every possible good work that he could do. Sometimes he would fast for three whole days at a time. He would sleep without blankets in the freezing cold just to prove that he was as devoted as possible. He said that often he would have a lustful or wicked thought. He would take off his garments and jump into the cold monastery pond. Luther would say, I was a good monk. I kept the rule of my order so strictly that I may say, if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. If I had kept on any longer, he said, I should have killed myself with my vigils, prayers, reading, and other work. But Luther said all these works never gave him any peace, never gave him any assurance of salvation at all. In fact, one day, Luther got the opportunity that he had been waiting and hoping would come and bring him peace with God. He was sent by his order to Rome to make a trip to Rome, which was the Mecca of the Catholic Church at the time. There were so many opportunities in Rome to get more and more grace. Rome had a plethora of relics and holy sites to go and get more grace from. They would hope that their sins would be covered, that the way of heaven would be opened because they saw these relics or went to these holy sites. And Luther went back home from Rome severely disappointed. He had not found any peace for his soul. It was clear to him that Rome was just using all of these relics and holy sites as nothing more than a tourist trap to make money. And when he returned from Rome, he was appointed as a professor of the local university there in Wittenberg, Germany. And in the providence of God, Luther was given the task of teaching the Bible. Luther began teaching through the Psalms. And then by God's kindness to him and to us, Luther began teaching through Romans. And studying the book of Romans changed the course of his life and changed the course of history as we know it. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 were verses that haunted Romans, that haunted him as he studied the book of Romans. He couldn't understand how the righteousness of God was good news. How can gospel be the righteousness of God? He was so unrighteous. He knew himself as so filthy and dirty. How can the righteousness of God be good news? But then the gospel landed on Luther's soul with the power, with the saving power of God. And Luther saw, and this is what I want us to see this morning, that we cannot save ourselves. That's what Paul is saying. We don't have the ability to make ourselves right with God. This is why we need the power of God for salvation because our power isn't enough. You can try all you want, but you cannot bring about salvation on your own. You need to be saved by the power that is outside of yourself, the power of the good news of Jesus. Listen, we, we can't save ourselves, but this verse says God has the power to save it's not hopeless because God can do what we cannot do for ourselves. God has the power to save unrighteous sinners from His wrath, verse 18. And God gives this saving power through the good news of Jesus, through the gospel. Notice Paul says, it is, that is, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. 
The way God rescues people from hell and brings them to heaven with Him and matures them is through this message about Jesus. The Gospel of Jesus. And this is the message that set Martin Luther on fire. The entire world was telling Luther that if he could just do enough good works, then God would save him. So Luther devoted himself to every good work imaginable, more than you and I could ever imagine doing in a lifetime. But when Luther read the Bible, he saw that salvation was only by the power of the gospel through faith in Jesus. The righteous shall live by faith. For Luther, this meant salvation was not in relics or pilgrimages or fasting or sacraments. Salvation was found by trusting in Jesus Christ alone. The gospel is not that we believe Jesus and then do all kinds of works to try to complete what Jesus did. No, the the gospel is that Jesus Christ is our righteousness before God. He's the only means of salvation. And so this morning, if you want to be free from your guilt, from the guilt of your sin, from the shame of your sin, trust in Jesus alone. If you want freedom from the righteous wrath of God directed at you, trust in Jesus. Your good works will let you down. Jesus will not. The peace and assurance that Martin Luther yearned for, that we all yearn for, is found when we entirely trust in Jesus and His salvation. The righteous shall live by faith. Listen, there is no salvation apart from the Gospel of Jesus. None. There's no righteousness with God apart from the Gospel of Jesus. And there's no life or power or joy or peace apart from the Gospel of Jesus. And so church, may we say with the Apostle Paul, I am not ashamed of this Gospel. I will gladly boast in and give my life to this good news. The good news of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus the King. Church, let's stand in this Gospel. Join me in prayer. Father, we need You. We are desperate people. Would You open our eyes to see all the ways that we relate to You in a legalistic way? Would You reveal to us the ways that we try to earn Your favor or Your kindness toward us? Would You reveal the ways that we've subtly slipped our works into Your work of grace? And would you help us to repent of those ways that we've sought your peace on our own? And would you help us to find ourselves just jumping headfirst into the stream of the gospel? Not because we have the power to do it on our own, but because the power has been supplied to us through your good news. Oh, help us to believe it. Help us to rejoice in it. Help us to boast in the gospel alone. Help us to stand here and to stand no other place. Oh God, may we not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus. Do your work of saving your people this morning. Save me by the power of your gospel. We pray you do your work in your way in Jesus' great name.